0: Greetings future fossils, this is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. This week's episode is extremely weird even for me, not because of our guest, the articulate and personable Ira Pastor, but about what he's here to talk about, which is a set of biomedical techniques currently under development that within the next five or 10 years could change pretty much all of our assumptions about the treatment of injuries, chronic diseases, and even death. In fact, when we're thinking of where we are in time, one of the things that comes up for me is how in the 19th century when we first discovered CPR, people got really concerned that we were possibly accidentally burying living family members. And so they started putting these little tubes that people could call through if they were in their grave and suddenly woke up. I remember seeing the diagram explaining how this horn coming out of the ground was connected to a coffin to ensure that nobody goes under unless they're really truly dead. Well, folks, if you haven't noticed, the last hundred years of discovery have challenged pretty much every hard and fast rule that we thought we had, every boundary imaginable, and that includes the boundary between the living and the dead. As they say in The Princess Bride, he's just mostly dead. And that's starting to look more and more like a legitimate medical statement when you look at remarkable revolutionary technologies like what BioCork is developing. But also, as we discuss in this episode, a plethora of... Amazing but slightly more mundane use cases like regrowing limbs and organs. You know, no big deal. Just the end of permanent disability. (sighs) Sometimes even for a guy who thinks as much about the future as I do, I get walloped upside the head with a total black swan. Like this episode, it's got me thinking in a whole new way about what you and I and our descendants can expect from the human condition and additionally it functions as a vital piece of the conversations around radical life extension and the future of treatment and palliative care because as more and more new methods like these come to pass we're really moving out of a paradigm of indefinite treatment by pharmaceutical corporations and into a new paradigm that puts greater emphasis on lasting cures. But before we get into this totally mind-melting conversation, I want to give a short shout-out and thanks to the new Patreon supporter, Chris DeLuag, I think that's how you say your name, as well as to Howard Blott, who significantly edited his pledge in my favor this week. Closer than ever! to being able to completely support this show through Patreon and the community there, who, by the way, just received a poll about which of the 18 pre-recorded episodes of this show y'all wanna hear first, as well as the unedited pre-release episode of the number one choice on that poll, the two and a half hour conversation I had with my old friend, science fiction writer and legendary psychonaut, the tea fairy so if you're interested in telling me which episodes you think should be coming out in what order and scoring access to a voluminous archive of exclusive and early release episodes and music and other goodies then you can head on over to patreon.com michael garfield and do that damn thing or if you can't afford anything in life other than your cell phone bill You can still be a huge help to this show by heading over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this and leaving a five-star rating and review, because that is an excellent and also totally free way of helping me get this podcast into the ears and minds of everybody who'd appreciate it. Also a reminder that the Future Fossils Facebook group is going off like the 4th of July, new interesting articles... Conversations in there every day. About 1,200 people sharing news and cool ideas. It's become my favorite part of Facebook and I hope to see you in there if you're not already. Well, that's it, folks. Thanks for bearing with me through that. Now brace yourself in whatever way you need to for an update on the paradigm-busting research of BioQuark and the Reanima Project with Ira Pastor. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Ira Pastor, it's a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. Thanks for having me, Michael. Appreciate it. So what we have not done on this show yet is have a, a serious earnest, in-depth conversation about radical life extension and the specific technologies that are moving this out of the realm of science fiction and speculation and in, into the realm of like a legitimate and uh, timely ethical discussion. So I'm really glad to, to have you on and, and I'd love to know a, a little bit more about you and your history and how bioquark came to be
1: yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I I come into the industry from a kind of unique angle. Um, I sort of grew up in it as a very young boy uh, with parents that were in the the pharmacy business here in the Philadelphia area back in the 1960s. So I was always around sort of medicine and healthcare, and it was sort of preordained that uh, I go into the family business back in the day. So uh, initially, I went to school and I became a pharmacist um subsequently i went back to business school and um you know in in pharmacy school uh, aside from the basics getting you know a little smattering of pharmacology and pharmacokinetics and toxicology and all sorts of interesting things um at the same time they still taught you quite a bit about uh, pharmacognosy uh, which is the discipline of studying natural products and sort of their relationships to human health and human healthcare products, uh, of which a large percentage of all pharmaceutical products that currently come out of the industry uh, have their origin from, primarily those from the plant, fungal and bacteria communities. I was always amazed by this and the fact that, okay, you know, evolution has put these species on this planet. They survived hundreds of millions, if not billions of years, uh, and they have answers for us in, in many different sort of contexts the idea for bioquark sort of you know jettisoned off of that in the sense that you know a lot of the smart people would tell us that uh, while we've touched the surface in terms of what the natural world has to offer us in terms of just bioproducts and knowledge there's a lot more that we haven't looked at. And so, you know, BioQuark was set up to explore some of this, uh, primarily in studying lower organisms that live on this planet with us, which, from a health and wellness perspective, are just far more advanced than we are uh, when it comes to things like complex regeneration, uh, when it comes to things like reversion of disease, and then ultimately, uh, as you were mentioning, when it comes to um, life life extension, uh, and death, uh, whether those be the negligibly senescent organisms or the organisms that age in reverse or even some that uh, die and are reborn. Uh, And needless to say, we as humans are extremely weak when it comes to many of these skills. And we uh, started BioQuark up with sort of the idea, how could we, with our knowledge of sort of the pharmaceutical industry and drug development. How could we merge uh, some of these learnings uh, in with that dynamic to answer the major questions in terms of human health, uh, wellness, and disease that are still in 2018 uh, knocking on our door and we don't have too many great answers for yet.
0: So do you think that it's just contingency or like the roll of the dice that we have – jellyfish that can unwind their biological clocks we've got or rewind them that we've got uh, salamanders and lizards that can regenerate limbs but that as as human beings we do not possess these uh, extraordinary capacities for regeneration or do you think that it's you get into this issue with evolutionary biology where you know people tend to err on the side of believing that everything that we see in nature had some sort of function that it was selected for for this reason so do you think I mean from what you've learned do you think that it's just merely blind chance that the higher mammals have lost these profound regenerative abilities or do you see it as a function of the complexity of our genomic interactions or what's going on there
1: yeah, I don't think it's as much of the the genomic complexity as it is that, you know, that critical point in time that uh, evolutionary biologists point to where we became bleeders, or, 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 or much more significant bleeders, in the sense that, um, you know, we are a species that bleeds very rapidly, we die of loss of blood very rapidly, and we have, from an evolutionary context, developed an excellent wound healing response that is based on thrombosis and fibrosis and uh, stopping the loss of blood very rapidly, uh, balancing out uh, the need for more complex forms of regeneration. Now, that being said, we do have some. Clearly, we do have regenerative capability. We have you know, our typical physiological turnover in terms of our blood and epithelial lining of skin and gut. We have a, a nice hypertrophic uh, regenerative capability in the liver. But yeah, when it comes to the more complex forms, epimorphosis and, and morphylaxis that we see in the organisms, uh, no. However, we do, in certain contexts, retain um, some ability. Uh, where do we see these abilities in humans? Well, for one uh, matter, we see it in uh, the period following fertilization, uh, whereby uh, the biochemical may view in Neuoplasm is very nicely uh, designed to undertake the tasks of age reset and epigenetic cleanup and all the other important functions to prepare a new embryo for its transition forward through embryogenesis and morphogenesis and so forth. At the same time, we are learning quite a bit in the last, let's say, 10 years or so where the topic of cellular competition has sort of reared its head in the biomedical space in terms of how tissues that we have are very good at organizing out. Uh, and organizing in cells that are preferred versus those that are not and we see this although we you know a lot of the papers you know are focused on sort of the cancer reversion dynamics that keep us nice and healthy on a daily basis and you know as I like to point out that as we're sitting here during the course of this conversation very quietly behind the scenes we are, are constantly having these Oncogenic reversion dynamics occurring uh, throughout the day. So, cellular competition dynamics of this nature point to the fact that um, while we may not be able to revert huge tumors like we see the salamanders capable of doing, we do have the back and forth play uh, going on behind the scenes. And once again, if it's an area that, you know, if we can harness to do a little more than just the Single-cellular versions. Uh, this may be very useful for areas like oncology uh, in the future, and, and this is, you know, one of the areas that we we like to study.
0: Mm. So yeah, I mean, I'm probably getting ahead of myself by talking about this principally as a life extension issue, because when I look at, you go to BioCork website and you look at what what your company, what your team is actually working on. The in vivo studies are like melanoma, hair loss. The one that interests me the most is traumatic brain injury. So I mean, now it seems like now is a good time to actually talk about the ooplasmic reversion or however you would put it, the way that you are engineering endogenous repair in the body. And to talk about some of the in vivo studies that, that you've been doing and, and what kind of results you've seen, because this is this is some uh, intensely fascinating, you know, very kind of cutting edge stuff as far as priming the body to heal from within. Yeah, I'd love to hear you kind of prime the audience about that.
1: Sure, sure. So yeah, I mean, our focus uh, has been on, and once again, we, we're completely open about the fact that a lot of this is not original research. It goes back to the 1950s in many senses. Uh, the the concepts and the ideas that ooplasm contains a wonderfully sort of evolutionary perfected basket of Biochemical moieties responsible for many of these reversion events. So you're, um, you're
0: talking about you're talking about placental tissue. here? No,
1: no, no, no. Uh, we're talking about actually oocyte, uh, sort of ooplasm, the cytoplasm and other components found within eggs. So the the mother cell of all of us that you know comes before the stem cells. So the biologic dynamics that occur following the arrival of the male DNA uh, via the sperm cell, the egg has to do a lot of things. Uh, Reset age, epigenetic uh, cleanup, remodeling organelles, protecting the new embryo from infectious insults, from oxidation, from inflammation. It has major responsibility. Uh, It is that sort of basket of we'll say possibilities that we are so interested in in studying and where we have focused. And and once again, it goes back to the 1950s when we first studied such materials in cloning experiments. And most people think cloning and and Dolly the Sheep in the 1990s, but Mm -hmm. frogs and other forms of amphibians were being cloned in the 1950s uh, and, and studying this potential of leoplasm for this reset, this sort of global reprogramming and reset. So, you know, we have Focused a lot on studying these moieties and understanding sort of their role and once again we are a um, we are a company just as a side note uh, while you know the pharmaceutical industry is very interested in uh, mechanism it, compared to mode of something happening we are we are we are a company that takes the position that mode. When it comes to these complex forms of repair and regeneration, it is much more important <laughs> to study. Um, and, and too often, I think that things get skewed in the opposite direction because we're so interested in knowing what happens at gene X Y four two one and not thinking of the big picture uh, that incorporates, you know, multiple genes and multiple microRNAs and proteins acting for a certain output. So, you know, we're very interested in the basket of biochemical substances in ooplasm and what they can do because they do a lot of things in Synergy. So, we've been studying these materials. We purify uh, specifically ones that are of more interest to us uh, in creating the biologics that we work on. And ultimately, we have been studying the last several years, both recapitulating in the Petri dish a lot of the work that came before us, but now also using in vivo models of disease and degeneration, uh, as you pointed out, with traumatic brain injury models in the lab some cancer models, we also have some skincare models, but basically understanding how we can administer such a basket of compounds, let's say, to uh, cells that are not an embryo. So basically, we all start off as one cell, it has the same genome as the 50 trillion that we become. Uh, those bioactive substances can affect the genome of all of our cells, and that is what we're very Interested in studying both the reversion dynamics or the dedifferentiation of tissue, and also the signals that allow a cell then to re-differentiate along a certain lineage. So we're looking at both sides of the reprogramming rubber band, as we like to call it. Hmm. Uh, and we've seen some very you know exciting results in in, in sort of the, the first stage of our company, in the sense of looking for things that we only expect to see in non mammals so things that we would only see in the zebrafish brain or the the limb of the, the salamander and so forth and translating them slowly into mammalian systems where these dynamics do not occur so that has been the focus when you see yes we we do a you know a wide range of, of models right now just because we're we are, we're shooting kind of broad and looking for a wide range of, of possible therapeutic targets of course Internally, strategically, we have neurology, oncology, and metabolic as, as three core pillars of the company, but we study a lot of things, uh, either internally or in partnership with uh, with other labs. But the core behind it all is how we can, in essence, turn back time in a, ser- a group of cells, in a tissue, and then start over again by then pushing forward along a development path that makes sense, whether it is brain tissue or breast tissue, what have you. And that is the general concept of what we're about and why we've taken this approach as a a biologics company, as opposed to being, say, a a stem cell company or a gene therapy company or something along those lines, which we don't think captures the full potential of of what we have here.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting approach in that, and I spent a ton of time talking about this on the show, that there is a reclamation a kind of a turn towards not not an atavism exactly but a going back to what has been lost and a sense that if you know for for civilization to proceed that we need to go back and do i mean what in some sense you know psychologists would call like shadow work which is going back and looking at the insights that we have thrown away as we have differentiated ourselves from from previous iterations of culture, uh, looking at the ways, you know, the, the thing, the baby that we threw out with the bathwater. And in this case, it's like, it seems that, you know, genetically, you know, biologically speaking more broadly that we've, we've kind of thrown out the baby and the bathwater. And that in this case, part of what we are reclaiming is even beyond, this sort of cultural retrieval of like going back and looking at lost esoteric techniques and wisdom traditions, going back hundreds of millions of years on one level to reclaim a somatic intelligence that we've lost in our process of evolution. But then also, you know, on the smaller level, this, like you said, turning the clock back to the ooplasm is... I don't know, I mean, I don't know how comfortable you are talking in this space, but it seems perfectly in sync with this broader sort of mythic return to an emphasis on the wisdom of the feminine and the body and the, um, I mean, in a weird way, it, this is. it seems like this is an integration of sort of masculine and feminine modes, like the analytical mode of science, and mm-hmm. this and this sort of more sort of nourishing nurturing feminine mode and then on top of that also as far as the drawing from other animal groups like going back you know climbing back down the evolutionary tree to find these branch points and drawing insights from them seems very much in keeping with a a trend in culture now towards deliberate appropriation and remixing and the sense that you know this this issue that so many people seem to get wrapped up in around chimeras and genetic hybrids and genetic (laughs) manipulation is clinging to this very sort of at this point sort of obsolete or even archaic concept of the human being as a genetically distinct and bounded individual so that's a hell of a lot to like chew on but i'm curious how you understand sort of the deeper framing of of this work in light of greater trends in science culture philosophy you know how you understand what you're doing in a a bigger picture
1: yeah and 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 you point out three very important topics and i'll address all three of them one, definitely. Um, and, I, and I always when I'm on discussion uh, about this and, and if I have a female interviewer, I, I especially I always talk about, you know, any ladies that are listening to this show at the point when we discuss <laughs> ooplasm dynamics and so forth, stand up, take a bow because you're responsible for all of this. And men, we, we do nothing. It, it, truly, it, 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 you can throw us away in, in, in the, the Jurassic Park context of it all, that, um, yes, there is clearly uh, a reconnection in that context to the, the feminine and the, I wouldn't say the disposal of masculine, but a clear sort of delineation that there is one group is doing something much more important and whether there is analogies there to you know the, the female lions that go out and hunt or other proxies on down through the uh, chain um, yes uh, clearly i'm i'm well aware of that dynamic and interestingly just as a side note when i, when I a lot of the time i talk about sort of the, the history of all this and how it goes back through the the 20th century and into the cloning and and in vitro fertilization in the 1950s, what a lot of people don't remember is the 1940s, how many of these technologies were the form of the first pregnancy tests that we ever had and just to say a real weird side note a few years ago i was talking to my mother who she passed away when she was 87 but she was telling me was when i was doing this work initially that her first job out of high school to pay for college was working in a lab where she was washing the urine out of test tubes that this technology was used for (laughs) to test her pregnancy so anyway a little side story there so there's a, a connection but um yes but even going back Further, going to the theme of sort of the reconnection, yes, we're not only seeing that uh, in sort of the biologic connection, but uh, even more broadly to the sort of the very physical uh, dynamics, the the topics of ancient tools, whether they be uh, light or sound, or more recently, you know, electricity and magnetism. You know, I'd like to point out that, uh, you know, if you and I were to get in a time machine and travel back to 100 years to a biology lab, we wouldn't be hearing a lot about these biologic terms. We'd be hearing more terms that sound like, you know, turn-of-the-century physics, fields and forces and waves and sort of these really abstract concepts that we are only now, 100-plus years later, reconnecting to the overall hierarchies of how all of this works together, right? Uh, Genes don't do anything. They're just pieces of information that take their cues from gene regulatory networks and then cellular regulatory networks and so forth. And what we're seeing now Rearing Ted in places like Tufts University uh, or RMIT down in Australia are these topics of bioelectricity, biomagnetic resonance. Uh, We're much more than a biologic entity. We are a physical entity. We are an electrical entity. We're a magnetic entity. We're full of light. We're full of sound. And unless we reconnect a lot of these we would say more esoteric concepts to the big picture of what it means to repair, regenerate, and rejuvenate oneself. We miss the big picture. If we're just looking at the genes <laughs> or if we're just looking at the proteins. And I think this has been, you know, one of the major flaws uh, of the industry in the last hundred years and why we are where we are. And then, yeah, just coming back to your topic about, you know, chimeras and sort of, you know, the way things are, you know, some of this futuristic stuff that people put on the table, yeah, I love to point out when you know people ask about sort of actionable stuff to do today, I always talk about the fact, you know what, don't forget the fact that although we're human, we contain the genome of everything that came before us. And though, you know, everything that helps someone out at some point, whether it's the cats that need large amounts of blood sugar or whether it's the frogs that need large amounts of inflammation because it's their only infectious disease response or even cancer, <laughs> Which, you know, utilizes the same genes that we see in species that are around a billion years ago, like pond scum, dixtacilium discoidium. You see the connection. We see we don't need to create chimeras. <laughs> we are chimeras. We're really complex chimeras. And unless we understand that and we sort of work around the genome, not just from a, a human perspective, but from all of the lockdown atavisms and, 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 and reconnect. There's a reason we had gills and we have tails and we have web fingers and toes inside the womb. We need to think very holistically how we approach these complex issues.
0: Well, I mean, clearly the approach to creating the entire context of the very beginning of something is, you know, that's, that's a very holistic approach. Something else that comes up for me in this also is this sense of... I mean I don't know how else to put this that there is I don't know how your other comp- this Reanima Advanced Biosciences is related formally to BioQuark but you know you mm-hmm. you uh it seems like they're rather intimately associated and and this is the site where you're talking about neuroregeneration and neuroreanimation research and there's something in in here like you were just you know speaking to uh you know thanks ladies that the immaculate conception (laughs) and the sense of a miracle. And like really like what we're talking about here is a science of something that while you, you may not personally, I don't know, be comfortable with using that language, we're approaching a scientific analytic understanding of how to do things that seemed impossible and that in the impossibility it's like the, in the, I'm not a Christian, but you know, there's the gospel of Thomas and in the gospel of Thomas, you know, you know, Jesus talks about having to become like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's not lost on me. Like I'm writing this, this piece right now on neoteny and on how as human beings have become more and more socially and cognitively sophisticated, we've become more and more pedomorphic or rather, you know, like we've reached social and sexual maturity at levels where our brains and bodies are functioning much more like the immature versions of our ancestors. And we've seen this this branch over and over and over going all the way back to the first vertebrates, which are essentially like the adult form of this free-swimming larva that became the sea squirt. Like it settles down at some point and becomes a filter feeder and we didn't. And because of that, we managed to like move into schools and achieve this whole new sort of evolutionary platform. And it seems like something something in that turn is going on here that that we are um, entering a new space of possibility by going into the very beginnings of ourselves, like reconnecting to that that origin or that source I don't know, I'm <laughs> I'm curious to hear more about neuroreanimation research in particular. And then also if you could double back and talk about specifically the findings with, with brain trauma and how you're seeing this reversion to the ooplasmic context of cells working in these kind of sweeping, seemingly kind of impossible changes on living tissue.
1: Sure. So just to briefly touch on what you were mentioning before, though, one of the the aspects in this whole ooplasm story of capturing the the ancient's ability of organizing in and organizing out what is wanted, uh, whether that is in a embryo or whether that is in a regenerating limb or whether it is in a uh, a plant. Uh, that uh, is developing from cell culture. Um, this general theme, uh, you see it across the biologic kingdom. Uh, now, the the one very interesting thing, going back to what you were just talking about as sort of the seminal or the originating uh, force, <laughs> it is well known, and you go into the literature, there is plenty of data out there from the 1980s and 1990s on the ability of ooplasms, both... Within eggs, and also in cell-free ooplasm experiments, to in essence reanimate dead biologic materials. I mean, the DNA. Uh, you can you can throw in some you know sort of naked DNA into ooplasm, uh, and it starts doing its thing as if it was you know part of a cell and uh, copying itself and getting ready to you know go on its forward journey. So mm. there really is something neat uh once again we didn't discover it uh you know a lot of this goes back to the 50s 60s and 70s but it's something that like many other parts of this space have have gotten less attention than they should have um okay just now now hopping over quickly to the, the reanima project this is clearly something that is unique uh it is it came to the table and basically uh concept materialized from a few things. One, uh, the decades of knowledge that showed that many species on this earth with brains can have them destroyed. uh, Planarians, amphibians, metamorphic insects even see this dynamic in some small hibernating mammals uh, only to regenerate in in perfect structure and function. Uh, This has been known. Simultaneously, Since the 1968 Harvard ad hoc brain death criteria was created, if you go into the literature, you will find primarily in very young infants several dozen reported cases of spontaneous brain death reversal. These cases are controversial, they are hotly debated, and they never had a good prognosis. But they, in our opinion, point out that when it comes to the topic of death, Things are not always black or white with regard to what it means to be alive and what it means to be dead. And lastly, well, on top of the fact that you've had quite a bit of sort of public exposure to the brain death topic in recent years, both with the the cases surrounding Whitney Houston's daughter, Bobby Christina Brown, and the Jahi McMath case, uh, you also have – an area of research known as living cadaver research, which has gone on for the past couple decades now, for primarily using human subjects for a variety of other biomedical purposes. So uh, toxicology, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamic studies. We basically wanted to put it all together and say, look, why can't we, with a 2018 tool set that's focused and has a, <laughs> a focus on neuroregeneration. Why can't we focus using this model that exists on probably the biggest problem that we have, or the one that clearly gets no medical research funding at all, the severe disorders of consciousness, including the most severe, which is brain death and the reason 65 million of us leave this world every year. So the Reanima project is in essence designed... Based on what we know and what we've seen in the lab with our standard weight drop models of traumatic brain injury, our lesion induction models in Parkinson's disease and spinal cord injury, uh, some of the anatomical neuroprotection dynamics that we've seen in our work, our work with neurodegeneration, neuroregeneration uh, in vitro and in vivo, uh, looking at different biomarkers, inflammatory cascades, taking all of this into account, why can't we begin to study... The use of such technologies for the reconnection of that very critical area that means that we're either dead or alive, the regeneration of the brain stem, which controls our independent heart rate and breathing. Mm. There's a major insult to injury when we die. I know, you know this is cocktail hour trivia stuff, but <laughs> when you die, provided, of course, we're not talking about some type of catastrophic death or time sensitive death. Yeah. Everything below your brainstem is very happy and healthy and chugging along. And in fact, it's been shown that appropriately supported brain dead subjects can metabolize, can mature, can have a baby, spike a fever, fight infection, do a wide range of things. With all this in hand, I think it's about time in the year 2018 that we begin to apply technologies like ours and other tools that are out there to how we could re-spark that area that once it's gone, it puts us into a basket of no longer being viable. Uh, and so uh, well, you know, people ask about this. It is clearly not the core focus of our company, but it is something that we believe 50 years after the definition of brain death was created at Harvard University needs to be explored. And so you know, we have taken it on as, our, you know, as a project of our companies to, to see how far we can go with this. Because we think some of the answers, not just related to brain death and the more severe disorders of consciousness, whether it's coma, persistent vegetative state, and so forth, but the trickle down to all chronic degenerative diseases of the central nervous system, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, on down the road, will be invaluable. So it is why we have placed some of our bets in such research. It is different. (laughs) Uh, It is unique. But it, we feel that in a, an overall context of disease reversion, repair and regeneration, it needs to be there uh, as a potential project.
0: Looking over your history of press releases, publications, podcast interviews and such, and I, I recommend anybody who is hungry for a deeper dive after this, go to the BioCork.com website and check all that stuff out. Looking over this stuff... One of the things that seems surprisingly underrepresented to me in the framing of your research compared to some of the other players in this space is the issue of radical life extension and biological immortality and the rhetoric of regarding death as a disease to be cured by biomedical innovation. You know, like I was just at the body hacking conference here in Austin, where Liz Parrish of BioViva, I'm not sure if you know her, but she experimented on herself with a telomere extending gene therapy and tours all over, gets up on stage and basically makes this case, which is a strangely compelling case in the voice of a mother concerned about finding cures for childhood disease, suddenly you know this Aubrey de Grey conversation about death, you know, or the Ray Kurzweil conversation about death as an abomination, becomes in the in like Liz Parrish's mouth a you know a humanitarian crisis, and yet <clears throat> your your company seems so much more in in a weird way. One, pushing even even more radical treatments with more radical promise. But then on the other hand, um, keeping those promises rather close to the vest and looking at this more within the context of caring for aging parents and treating failed organs and and that, you know, regenerating a lost hand and that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, the and, and it's not that we're ashamed or afraid of discussing, I mean, we're, I'll hang in there with anyone and, and can talk about that for for hours. The, the issue for us is that radical life extension uh, becomes a side effect of our work. So clearly, the ability to turn back time in a tissue, whether it's a kidney or a liver or a heart, the brain, spine, whatever, um, yeah, in essence, makes it younger, rejuvenated, and starts, a la the immortal jellyfish, starts things over at an earlier stage. We're completely aware of that and are you know, pro sort of the anti-aging side effects of what we do. Um, where we differ a bit, and you know, I hang in the same circles with a lot of these folks, um, and, and once again, it goes back to what I mentioned early on in the discussion, we don't believe that the aging problem can be solved at its outputs there may be very excellent therapies that come out of that but in the same context and i'm a you know although i've i spent my time in the pharmaceutical industry and i am a critic of the pharmaceutical industry today a lot uh, because i know its problems my personal feeling is a lot of what goes on out there right now in the life extension community is Still quite close to what pharma, big pharma does, and I don't know if they've set themselves up just because they think that's the right model, or what have you. But honestly, I don't believe the answers in the long term are going to be to do these things the same way that pharma does, and looking primarily at genomic outputs, or uh, slightly up the um, you know upstream from that in terms of damage. I think there's good therapies that will come. Whether they will extend your life. Uh, dramatically, I don't think so. I think if you want dramatic life extension, you have to go far up the river to, as as I mentioned earlier, the architecture that controls you know, all of the trickle down. And I'm not just talking about, I'm not talking about Aubrey de Grey's little, you know, chart of you know metabolism uh, damage and pathology, but I look at it – if you take Aubrey de Grey's little thing and you put that inside a circle as one cell and then begin to think, okay, we are 50 trillion of these little packages, how one addresses a 50 trillion cell organism in a translational context because it's not about more small molecules or other sort of very targeted – pharma-style interventions. Yes, I'm a proponent of radical life extension, and I'm not one that hides behind health span versus lifespan and all that stuff. But I do believe that we have to think a little broader than the current folks are thinking. And at the same time, you're not going to have radical life extension without anti-death at the same time. And a lot of it is focused on the anti-aging part of the equation. I understand why. But at the same time, while they talk about 100,000 to die of, Aging every day, you have to keep in mind that fifty thousand also die of acute trauma every day, <laughs> and unless you solve both sides of that, you have to solve both aging and death reversal to truly have radical life extension. hence why we work in both mm. so everyone jokes well i'll just you know you got to make sure you 're not going to get hit by a bus or and so but I say to myself, no, we have to solve what happens when you do get hit by a bus because that 's what's going to happen when you don't get cancer anymore and, and you don't have Alzheimer's anymore because you're gonna get hit by the bus. It's just what's gonna happen. Mm.
0: So some of my favorite biohackers like to parade around with the pretense that they are black hat biohackers, you know, to to indulge in the sort of uh you know biopunk dystopian fantasy but I mean, to me, that makes them ultimately a positive benefit to the conversation in the same way that dystopian science fiction helps us avoid particular cultural or social pitfalls. So, I mean, somebody who works as closely with this stuff as you do, I'm really curious to know you must have spent in your time with this some time contemplating the horrible potential consequences, uh, you know, ways that this technology could be, uh, you know, abused or, or weaponized or could lead to sort of undesirable uh, secondhand social outcomes. And I invite you to just kind of go out on a, on a limb here, if, if you've thought about any of that stuff, and, uh, you know, look at what could go wrong in the deployment of a technology like this. You know, it's one of these things where it's like it seems just so remarkably beneficial, but then of course you get into issues of access and haves and have-nots, et cetera, as just one very obvious and easy thing. But let's say everyone had it, what could go wrong? Um,
1: Well, just let me answer the haves and have-nots for a second. I'm going to make one point about that. Um, When we set this company up, although we realized we were looking at a 21st century. Target, let's say, or outcome in terms of some of these dramatic benefits, uh, we made sure to set the company up as a traditional 20th century biologics company. We realized that, well, the science also told us not to go in that certain direction, but uh, we realized early on that it would make no sense per what you're seeing nowadays, you know, two million dollar shot chain therapies and all this other stuff that to build a company that was based on 100 people in the United States being able to afford it and and so forth. And and most insurance companies rejecting it uh, off a formulary, even if it was approved, didn't make a lot of sense. So we are set up and, and the strategy of our company moving forward, we will never be any more expensive in terms of what we're developing than any other biological in the market today. So I point out, you know, if your healthcare system covers insulin, if it covers vaccines, if it covers human growth hormone, you're going to be able to afford what we do because we use off the shelf biologics development technology from the 1970s. So there's nothing here that's going to be a ridiculous, you know, multimillion dollar uh, a pop procedure. Mm. So people should be happy about that. This, this is this is access for everybody. This is not just for the billionaires. Um, as far as. Um, negative outcomes, um, I think we're, you know, once again, I think we're in a pretty decent zone compared to the problems that uh, come with some more exotic tools, whether they're gene editing or uh, some of these other um, uh, modes of therapies that have a translational barrier in terms of how you deal with 50 trillion cells. Mm. You know, Craig Venter has this great quote, we are not giant amoebas. <laughs> it's one thing to use CRISPR on a couple cells in a Petri dish, but when you have 50 trillion you're dealing with, the dynamics change. Hence, once again, why we wanted to put ourselves in something that is much well, more well-known with biologic moieties that the genome knows, has seen. (laughs) And from a sort of pharmacologic perspective, the worst sort of side effect type profile one could ever experience would be, you know, slightly exaggerated pharmacology or something along those lines, as opposed to, you know, uh, a, a gene inserting in the wrong place, even though CRISPR says to be so perfect and, you know, not finding out about what's going on until things get out of control. So I think from a, a straightforward pharmacotherapeutic perspective, we are on pretty strong footing. Now, people will, of course, throw hollywood scenarios out there uh (laughs) clearly we got a lot of the zombie type stuff going on last year and you know and i like to jokingly point out look uh if you want a zombie um there are plenty of uh fda approved uh, delirients that will do that for you today. Uh, there are plenty of bacteria that will cause that effect today. And hey, I can drive around today and see many people on their cell phones just drive, <laughs> driving with their head down. I, I think that's a little worse of a zombie than anything that could come out of any of the work that we're doing. We can go on and we can talk about social implications of radical life extension. So you've probably got into that topic with a lot of other people and I'd be glad to go in that direction. But I think intelligently done, Uh, with the right balance of therapeutic potential, we have the ability to have a much, let's say, wider, not just therapeutic window, but social window on how this tool and the resulting therapeutics will be deployed versus others. And the last thing, I, and I just want to, one other thing I want to point out. If you, along the lines of your weaponization question, one only needs to uh, point out that the most poisonous substance known to exist on this planet, botulinum toxin, is now a multi-billion-dollar-a-year product used by women for for all <laughs> sorts of purposes. Uh, things go full circle on this planet. Uh, and whether it's Botox or ricin or mustard gas, they're all therapeutics nowadays in the pharmaceutical market. So you know, we'll see. But I don't think there's anything weaponizable. Anything we do.
0: Oh wow! So you know, something that comes up for me in in considering this, and maybe this is a drop in the bucket compared to like other ways that this is a concern, but surely if we were able to deploy on a planet-wide scale this type of therapy and this is this is something that seems to have kind of no boundary like no edge to the scope like it seems as though this is something that's going to revolutionize the medical approach in every system of the body and every major in every area of medicine So I I look at this and I just think, my God, the turnover in medicine, just in terms of the shakeup that this would do to the current lay of the land in terms of the jobs and uh, the roles that are available to people working in that space seems rather extensive. That you'd be, you know, I mean, best case scenario is, you know, you're putting a lot of, uh, you know, morgues and funeral homes out of work. In addition to surgeons and f- pharmacists and et cetera.
1: Yeah, it's I see a a separate industry developing out of this. And people you know always ask about well, you're from the pharma industry, um, are you gonna sell out when you have positive phase two data and is the stuff gonna get buried and all this business? A
0: vital I, I think, question.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what you're going to see is really two industries develop. You're going to see one that maintains the need for your cholesterol lowering and your blood pressure and your antibiotics and your painkillers and everything else that we traditionally think of as a treatment. We still need those treatments for the, the symptoms of disease. That industry will shrink. Uh, It will be made up of your traditional pharmaceutical companies, but they will, and they've done this to themselves. It's going to be a side effect of both their decreasing market presence due to generic competition, as well as the fact that they've basically thrown out so much internal r&d that they're just these marketing shells uh, nowadays so they're going to shrink a lot but they're going to maintain a business based on sort of this treatment-centric approach then there will be a different business uh, and that business will be curative what form it will ultimately take how integrated it will be with you know The healthcare industry versus the pharmaceutical industry, uh, whether there will be devices or other tools that we can only begin to imagine, is still up for question. However, yes, people in different fields will not be in those fields anymore. I I am one that says, I hope we will get rid of all organ transplantation one day. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: If we can... Although there's sort of this ex vivo organ engineering dream where, you know, they hope for you one day, Michael Garfield, to have a refrigerator of hearts and kidneys and other stuff that is, you know, tissue matched and and made your own stem cells and all that business. At the end of the day, I say I'm not interested in any of that. If I can repair and regenerate the kidney, the liver, the heart, the brain that you have currently – you don't need parts <laughs> sitting somewhere. So, uh, yeah, we hope to get rid of organ transplantation as an example. And if we get rid of organ transplantation, we're going to get rid of the dialysis business as well for kidneys. And we're going to get rid of artificial pancreas technology. We're going to have an impact, obviously, taken to its logical extreme. But that will create new opportunities. I- I'm not I'm not afraid of that. But once again, I think we are beginning to see the, the tide turn in the sense that what we used to think of as the pharmaceutical industry in the sense of little white pills in plastic bottles dispensed at your local Rite Aid is not going to be what is going to be around 10, 20 years from now. And when you see things like like my former employer at GlaxoSmithKline, electroceutical programs coming mm. online. When you see things like uh, there's the PureTech organization up in Boston, which is creating micro in terms of the microbiome products, actual cocktails of live bacteria that is going to be the therapeutic. Uh, And you even see things, you know, I don't know how many people know that you know leeches and maggots are currently FDA approved for debridement of non-healing skin wounds by by FDA. So. There's a lot of weird stuff out there that's quietly happening behind the scenes uh, where people are saying, you know what? A drug doesn't need to be this little white pill anymore. It can be other stuff and it's going to have to be other stuff when it comes to these more complex forms of intervention. So we're excited. Uh, We think things are going in in the right direction and um, what everything's going to look like 20 years from now, I can't say, but it will look different. Mm. And people with different types of jobs.
0: How do you think it's going to affect us in the next, you know, in the short term, like in the next two to five years? Are you gonna, are we gonna to start to see any of these treatments become publicly available in that time frame, or are we, what are we waiting on as far as the clinical trials and so on?
1: Well, our, our clinical plan in the United States, we have three years uh, till first in human, five years till registration. So our U.S. program is a little longer than some of the things we are studying in terms of XUS possibilities, but still that our belief is, and our strategic plan calls for orphan fast track indication number one registered within five years. And, you know, if you have an impact in, you know, let's, let's say, kidney regeneration, kidney remodeling uh, in an orphan condition... Based on the way this industry works, that trickles up to you know, the kidney as a as a whole, which you know, the sixty billion dollar market alone to play in. So we think that once the data starts coming in from some of the initial indications on inducible endogenous regeneration events, things are going to explode. We are also ex-US. We're a US company, but this isn't the 1980s anymore. You know, while drug companies would only focus on the US and if putter around a bit in Western Europe. Um, they they forgot about the rest of the world back then. They didn't really care about it. The really smart people will tell you nowadays that if you're not at least researching the rest of the world to know what's going on in you know with conditional approval in Japan or, you know, what are the rules in Indonesia versus Colombia versus Turkey. Because these companies are coming on, the countries are coming online fast and furious with regard to their markets. And combine that with the fact that you have this increased globalization now of medical research and training. So, you know, you have Harvard Medical School operating in Dubai and Newcastle Medical School operating in Malaysia and dozens of US uh, institutions opening up in China. It's a really weird and unique system we're getting into in terms of medical research in 2018. And it's no longer, hey, I need to spend a billion dollars in the U.S. to get my project done. There's 200 plus other countries out there. And it's the United States is the 19th country we we <laughs> register in. So be it. Uh, there's a lot of possibility out there now. So we're excited. And one can only, I like to point this case out. I don't know how many people are aware of sort of the relationship that Merck the fifth largest drug company in the world, formed with the government of China last year. No. But they basically, they they set aside an island, this Hainan Island, which is sort of this tropical hub for, um, for sort of medical tourism, pharmaceutical tourism. They get the fifth largest drug company in the world that basically is making some of their immunotherapies for cancer available to, you know, People that want to biohack, you know, God forbid you have, you know, stage three pancreatic cancer, but you can now travel to Hainan Island off the coast of China and access these therapies pre-approval in the United States. So it's a really unique situation that we're seeing and we have to be everywhere. We have Mm. to really know uh, what the possibilities are because it's, you know. We love the United States. We're a U.S. company. We'll always be a U.S. company, uh, but we have to be elsewhere as well.
0: And now also in the U.S., we have right to try also, correct? Like uh, My understanding is that even if it hasn't cleared the final stages of of FDA approval, that if you are a terminally ill patient, that you now have the legal right to pursue, at your own cost, experimental treatments that you may not survive to actually see— hit the market
1: right the, the issue my understanding with right to try is you still have the sort of the expanded access problem where you know you can knock on uh, whomever's door jnj or pfizer or merck and they can say no
0: mm.
1: well over in you know we don't want you dying in you know as patient 101 we don't want that data point in our clinical trial in the U.S., while well, what I understand is going on in Hainan Island and China right now is you can just you go and you take a vacation and you want Truda or whatever, you want to try it for X cancer, here you go, hey, done. And it's not a clinical trial, per se. It's I, As you were saying about biohacking, it's sort of like N of one biohacking patient. So right. it's a little different um, and creative, in my opinion. So.
0: Fascinating. So I like to end all of these episodes by inviting guests to spend a minute musing on how you hope your work is understood in light of history. Like what, what trees are you planting now? And I think we've pretty much spent this whole conversation (laughs) explaining this, but to let you tie a bow on it, if your life's work is understood as planting a tree that you'll not live to eat the fruit from. You know what is it that you hope you're remembered for, or or how is you, how is it that you hope your life is understood by people living in you know 100, 200 years?
1: Well, I I hope if I don't live to see the fruit of these efforts, that my children will, uh, three lovely children, and sort of this is I usually talk about the fact that one of the things that got me so interested in taking this step. Beyond the comfort of the traditional pharmaceutical industry was seeing my father go down to spinal cancer, my mother go down to chronic lung disease, my maternal father, heart disease and so forth. And understanding that a trillion dollar industry that I was working in was providing no answers for any of this. Mm. I hope that if I do not live to see the fruit of this, that my children definitely will and when you know my daughter is 250 or however old she will be in the radical life extension era that i will be looked back as somebody that wanted to make a difference and was willing to risk breaking down some of the sort of the established thinking uh, that created the problem in the first place i think that Let's say radical life extension in general is an important goal for the future of humanity per the elimination of degenerative diseases uh, associated with aging and death and sort of realizing the the transhumanist ideal and so forth. Uh, But we really need to think outside the box and not fall into the traps that the old system, the traditional pharmaceutical industry, its regulators, and a century-old model of drug development – has put us in 2018, and that there are a reason, coming back to the very beginning in our evolution of biology, there's a reason that microbes and plants and invertebrates and so forth have survived for hundreds of millions of years on this planet uh, and developed their answers to many of these problems that plague us. I call them nature's transhumanists. Mm -hmm. They've shown us the way uh, we need to follow their lead, and if we can do this, it's going to be a very bright future, and hey, if I don't see it, I hope I'm remembered for helping to create it.
0: Mm. Well, it's beautiful. I'm honored to have had the opportunity to speak to you today, Ira, and I'm glad to share your work with this audience. Thanks for joining us on the show.
1: I really appreciate it, Michael. This, this was a great time. Yeah,
0: thanks. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the Mind Pot Network, along with Third Eye Drops, the Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs, I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils. So stick around and have a most excellent year.